Father, we thank you that today we can gather and even that we gather inside. God, we, we by shifting back in and, and feeling more normal, we remember today your mercy and we thank you for it. God, we thank you for the favor that we've had with the school and the superintendent in this district who have allowed us to meet here and to regather inside. But God, we thank you for your mercy that's allowing our country and our world to go back more towards a normal life. God, thank you for your mercy and protection. God, over all that has taken place over the last year and a half, God, so many different things, not just a pandemic. God, we thank you, though. And, and today, this reminds us to slow down and do just that. God, we thank you that we can worship together, God, with freedom and without fear. And so today, we thank you for our country as well, that we get to be here and that we get to know with confidence that we can gather and sing and worship and talk about Jesus without fear of people coming in and interfering or breaking this up. And so we thank you for that privilege. God, the blessing of being here in the United States. Father, we thank you also for the scriptures and we pray as we open them, God, help us to see your heart. And today, as we talk about for us as a church, as we move forward, I pray that we would get a glimpse of your heart and some vision and direction from you for us. Father, each church is going to look different and feel different and even have different things that are part of their heartbeat. And so God, shape our heart to reach specific needs around us as a church. God, shape us into the people and into the community that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today really does feel like a big day in the life of our church, and, and moving inside, I think, really does feel like an opportunity for us to really start taking some steps forward together as a church family. And it also creates an opportunity for me just to reiterate to you all just how thankful I am that you have chosen to be a part of this church family. Um, I'm so, so thankful that you're here, and I'm so thankful for this new season in my own life. And for Lindsay and I, when we first started praying at the end of last summer about maybe potentially making this transition to come here and, and to be a part of the church family at Olive Branch, as I started meeting with the elders here at the church and with Pastor Scott, who had planted the church uh, 10 years ago, they began referring to this because of COVID and all that was happening as really a replant and a relaunch of a church that was already established here. And when I first settled in here, I told you my very first Sunday, in fact, that it would be a replant, however, that, that we would plant the same seed that's always been planted here, that, that we would plant scripture, that the, the seed, remember, we just walked through the parable of the sower, that the seed is the word of God, not just the scriptures, but specifically the person, Jesus, and that we would remain a church that loves scripture and that would faithfully plant the seed of Jesus in our own hearts every time that we gather and then looking to plant it in the community around us. I told you we would plant the same seed and that it would even germinate in really the same kind of soil because my heart is very much like Scott's and that I'm just a simple shepherd who loves people and loves Jesus. And, and so I'll be a local shepherd of this local flock. And so it's the same seed, it's the same soil, but we talked about inevitably it would bring about a new or different vintage, a, a different flavor to things, a uniqueness to it. And so I want to take a moment just to thank those of you especially who have been a part of really the original Olive Branch Church family that predated the transition of bringing Lindsay and I into the church family. I want to thank you that you've stuck around uh, with us and you've been willing to celebrate that new vintage, the new season, our new flavor of things uh, in the church that you've really loved and cared for for years before our arrival. You've neither complained nor disappeared uh, and you've been very, very gracious with me, even with 
the unique and different quirky flavor at times. And I just want to thank you. It's a, it's a blessing to me that you're here. Uh, this last week, I spent some time at a pastor's conference, and I started getting asked by different guys uh, that I knew who knew that I just uh, shifted this direction. They were asking, what's the, the two surprising, two most surprising things? One that maybe was a surprising challenge, and another that maybe would be uh, a surprising positive thing in your experience of being there in the last eight months. And I told him, I think that the challenge has been that I've never thought of myself as very entrepreneurial, but that's what this has kind of turned into for me is, is it's been a bit overwhelming with having my hands involved in so many things, and I've had to learn really to lean on and really appreciate uh, those of you who have served and helped, and so I just want to thank you. I'm so thankful that Scott is still present. I'm thankful for Dave and Pepper, the elders here at our church, uh, for Roger, uh, who serves us so faithfully, for Eva and Shirley and Lindsay and Olivia and so many more people who have jumped in to help. It's been huge. But when I thought about the positive surprise, I'll tell you the positive surprise that really does so much in my own heart is the fact that I don't think we've lost anyone from the original church, that you all have stuck with us. And maybe it's because I didn't know those who left, and so don't burst my bubble. <laughs> but even if this church had grown multiple times over in size, but if we had lost the original folks that were here, I'll tell you, I would have felt like we failed as a church during this transition. And so I'm so thankful uh, that to at least my knowledge, though it may be limited, that, that you all have stayed and chosen not to depart. And you've been very gracious and compassionate and patient with me. So it is the thing that I'm very thankful for. And as we take a step forward today, it feels like a moment in time for me just to stop and say again, especially to those of you who are with the original church, thanks for sticking with us. I really do appreciate it. But because of this special moment and day, I want to celebrate with you today really what God has been doing. And so we'll, we'll talk about Jesus continuing to build his church, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. But I also felt like this is a good time for us as we shift gears, go back inside, take steps forward, for us to slow down and break away from our journey through Mark's gospel in order for us to talk through really what's the vision and the direction for our church specifically as we continue to take these steps forward. So that's what we're going to do today is just push pause on our journey through Mark's biography in the life of Jesus and instead talk about us as a church. Um, and if you've been here for the last eight months, this should neither be the first time you're hearing these things. It shouldn't feel like an introduction to new concepts. It should be things that you feel like you've heard already and even that you've seen begin to play out in the life and rhythm of our church. You know, when this church was first planted 10 years ago, uh, the name Olive Branch was selected and attached to the new work that Scott and others believed that God was calling them to take a, a step and venture into. And you know, in Scripture, the very first mention of an olive branch, your mind should be going back to the story of Noah. Well, remember, the judgment of God came against a godless world that had rebelled and when, when Noah was waiting to see if the judgment of God had come to an end, if it had been appeased, waiting to see if humanity could once again resettle and start again, if God's mercy would be extended, remember he sends a raven out from his boat in Genesis chapter 8, and the bird returned with an olive branch. And that became then an idiom all throughout the ages for, you know, the, the terminology, extending the olive branch. It becomes an expression that means to make an offer of peace and reconciliation. That's the idea, really, of that moment. People don't miss the significance of it. And so 
really throughout human history, then that's what it's become known as, to make an offer of peace and reconciliation. Because in the moments there on the ark where humanity needed the mercy of God to be extended to them again, heaven itself extended the olive branch to humanity. An offer of peace in place of judgment, of grace and love that was undeserved, of reconciliation that could not be earned. And for us as a church, we want to be an extension of heaven's peace, its grace and love and reconciliation in our broken world. And we do that by introducing the world to the branch. The branch. You see, the branch was not just a thing that God extended from heaven. It would be the person that heaven itself would become. In fact, if you skip ahead in the Old Testament narrative to the prophet Zechariah, He's a prophet in the Old Testament who arrived to encourage the people of God after they've had their city in ruins and the, the temple had been destroyed. He's trying to encourage the people of God to continue rebuilding the house of God, specifically reminding them of it, the significance of the temple. And they were not merely constructing a building in that season of time. Really, they're building a future for their people. They're constructing a place together where Messiah himself, Jesus himself, the person would arrive and reveal himself to the whole world. And so Zechariah begins a prophecy where he talks about something that has a dual fulfillment, both a soon coming fulfillment, but then a far reaching fulfillment that would reach into the centuries ahead. And what he prophetically describes will echo through the centuries to speak of Yeshua, Jesus, the Savior, the branch, is how, Ezek or is how Zechariah will put it. The branch extended from heaven to the earth, Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9, to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That that's what God gives him a picture of. That, that the olive branch would not just be the thing that heaven would extend, but it would become the person that heaven would embody, who would come to, to reveal to humanity that there was mercy and reconciliation and peace that was available. But the prophet recognizes for that to happen, he will have to purchase, remove iniquity, purchase our freedom in one day by walking in this world, by being on this land. He's speaking prophetically of Jesus becoming the branch, the olive branch, extended from heaven to humanity, when heaven itself becomes human to suffer and die in humanity's place, removing the iniquity of the land in a day in a single act of judgment and justice and love on a cross. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2 where it says, it makes the comment, for there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And there was Jesus, suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, connecting once again God with man, connecting heaven with earth again. That is the storyline of our Bible. That is the storyline even of the olive branch that would be extended. And we want to be an extension of Jesus, the branch. That's our hope and that's our heart, to extend love and grace and mercy and reconciliation to the world as we bring Jesus to the world. That's what we celebrate. This church exists because of Jesus. This church exists to celebrate and worship Jesus. And this church exists to become an extension of Jesus, to live and function as an olive branch to the world. You see, the prophet Zechariah's concern was the building of the temple so that the branch could arrive, as the prophets had foretold, in a rebuilt temple. 
revealing himself to the world, becoming the final Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And for us today, at Olive Branch, we're, we're not concerned about constructing a building. Our concern is about building our own lives as Jesus followers, that the life and love of Jesus might live again through us, reconciling the whole world back to God. We know that The Bible tells us that he is building, God is building his house with living stones. We don't go to a temple to where the Spirit of God is housed, the only place that we could experience God. No, we no longer have to go to a geographic location because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You remember in Colossians, Paul said, it's been given to us to be revealed the mystery of the ages, that it's Christ in you, your hope of glory. Our goal is not to build a church building. Our goal is to build out the lives of the church for us to become more like Jesus as his spirit fills our lives, that as his spirit lives inside of us, that the life of Christ could be lived again through each of us. But the question is, how will we do that? And really the question is, well, what does God really want from us who are his people? And Jesus was asked that very same question, and that's why I had you turn to Matthew chapter 22. He was asked that very same question of what is it really? If we boil it down to something, what would we boil it down to? What does God want from us? Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, or as Mark's gospel tells us, a scribe, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So in this little vignette that we'll just walk through very briefly, the religious leaders come asking Jesus a bunch of questions, but this final question has extra significance to it. It's a scribe who comes. The the scribes are the experts in explaining the law. They're they're half theologian, half lawyer, where there's hundreds of Old Testament laws, and it was their job and responsibility to break them down into every possible meaning and implication of those laws. 613 Old Testament commandments, 248 of them are positive commandments. Do these things, 365 of them, one for every day of the year, were a negative thing that you should stay away from because of how destructive it would be to you. But in addition to that, you've got some 1,500 commandments that the Jewish Mishnah, the collection of rabbinical writings from shortly before the time of Christ, as those writings were coming together, they produced another 1,500 extra rules around those commands to protect us from ever even getting close to those things. And so these people spent their whole lives studying the commands of God, classifying them, categorizing them, and then teaching people the implications of them. And so this guy comes asking, what is the greatest of them all? The greatest, the biggest, the most important of all the hundreds of rules and commands. Jesus, boil it down. What's the most important thing? Now, historians tell us that during this era of time in history, that half said, half of people like this individual who approached Jesus, 
have said that it was sacrifice was the greatest command, that that's what God needed and wanted from people was for them to offer sacrifices. While the other half said that really it wasn't about sacrifice. It was all the Jewish rituals, like beginning with circumcision, but ending with so many other things that that's what God was after. And then Jesus responds and says it's neither sacrifice nor ritual. What does Jesus say it is? What does he boil it down to? He says love. He responds quoting from the great Shema. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema means to hear, but to hear with intention of doing. To hear and do. Remember the great Shema of God is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments, here's what God says, I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them even to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now for people back in Jesus' day, the pious Jews, they would have recited that statement, the Shema, to hear. Remember, it begins that statement, hear, hear with intention of doing, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and love the Lord your God. They would recite it twice a day, every morning and evening as bookends on their day. And then in obedience to what they believed this was saying, if you read it and I read it, most of us would probably look and say, God is telling them, teach this to your children. Remember this throughout your day. Remember, keep it on your mind throughout the day that this is what's true, that your life is about loving God and being loved by him. Instead, for many of them, they would tie things around their wrist, these leather straps as reminders of this truth. And then they would place little boxes that they'd strap around their forehead. Maybe you've seen Orthodox Jews even today that would place these little boxes that they would write this passage out and slide it into that little box to bind it on their head rather than just keeping it in their mind. Uh, for others, they then take it and they roll it up in little scrolls and they place it on their doorpost so that every time they come and go, they see it and they remember it. But what Jesus answered them with is neither sacrifice nor ritual. He says instead, the greatest of the commandments is to love God, and then it's to love other people around you. He quotes then from Leviticus 19, where it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am your God, Yahweh. I love how this little vignette wraps up where Jesus makes this statement. In verse 40, he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Or another translation says it this way, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Years ago, there were some students that Lindsay and I had spent some time with who went on a missions trip to Africa, and they brought our kids back a gift because uh, our, our oldest was very young and, and just a little baby. And so they brought back a mobile, I believe is what you call it. You hang it over a crib. Um, yeah, the little mobile had little hand-stitched animals that were beautiful and, and super cool that they, they purchased it in Africa, brought it back with them, a very kind gift. But the little mobile over the crib is something I often picture every time I read this passage. Because Jesus makes the comment that on these hang all the law and the prophets. 
all of these little commandments that hang off of these things, like the two simple cords that went up to the hook on top, that, that the mobile hung from all the little cute animals, all the different things, every law and expectation, everything and guideline God would lay out, all of it would be hinged on, would hang from these two simple things, love God and love people. In fact, Jesus taught, if you love me, you'll obey me. Listen, the truth is that if I truly love him and love others and treat them the way that I would want to be treated, then I'd never murder someone because I love God and I love others. And, and rather than being hateful and unforgiving towards them or vengeful and violent towards them, I'd be compassionate and gracious and quick to forgive. I wouldn't commit adultery because I love God and, and I love my family and don't want to do that to them. I wouldn't even covet my neighbor's goods, his possessions, because I, I would want to rejoice with them because I love them and happy. I'm happy for them that they're doing well. I won't use people or take advantage of people, exploit them or steal from them because I love God and because I love them. On these hang, these two things, on them hang every law, every ordinance, every expectation. Jesus summed it up, what is the greatest commandment by saying it's to love God and love people. The Old Testament prophet Micah, before Jesus arrived, he had boiled it down, all of God's commands and requirements, to something very simple and concise. When he said, he, he said, God has told you, O oh man, what is good and what God requires of you. What he requires of you is that you would do justice and that you would love kindness and that you would walk humbly with your God. But when Jesus arrives, he boils it down even further, making it even more simple than the prophet Micah had. He said that you should love God in response to the love that he has for you. And then you should love, you should respond to God's love, directing that love back at God, but then at every other person you'd interact with. In fact, love fulfilled the law in totality. Only love could and only love did. Jesus, the embodiment of God, the, the manifestation of love among us, fulfilled the law in totality and to perfection. And because he did, love frees us from the power and dominion of the law itself. You see, this is the mission for every follower of Jesus. This is what he said. This is really even the mission for every church that gathers under Jesus' name, that we would love God and that we would love people. And that's really true of our church. That is our heartbeat and our goal. As we look at Jesus and what he says to us, that we look and say that this is the heart that we ought to have. If we boiled everything down to the essence of Christianity, it's not ritual, it's not expectation, it's not pressure, it's love. And for us here at Olive Branch, we're a non-denominational, Jesus-loving Bible church. And our goal in a nutshell, really, as a church, is to help people to cultivate a loving relationship with God through Jesus that reshapes their own life, but then would reshape our community as well. And for us, we attempt to reach that goal really through four different things. And this is what I want to talk through with you for a few moments now. Four different things, or you could view it as four pillars that hold up our church, or four targets even that we're aiming at. I mean, if Jesus is going to build the church here, he's going to use these four building materials to build with, to, to establish it with. And the first is perspective, that this is the target we're shooting at. That what we want to do as we gather as a church is that we want to connect people with the right perspective of God, of themselves, and the world around them. 
That that's our goal when we gather, that we want to slow down and connect people with the right perspective about God themselves and the world around them. But the second thing is mission. That we want to then commission people into the mission of God for the world that they live in. That we don't want to just think right, but that we want to respond then and live right as we engage and interact with the world around us. That we want to commission people in the mission of God for the world that they live in. But the third thing is community. That we want to invite people into a community where they can experience life and God together with it. That's what we want to establish here. is a community where we can come to experience life and God together. And our end goal, all of those things are going to help us to accomplish our end goal, and that is discipleship. That, that we want to train people to actively follow Jesus as his disciple. Really, our goal as followers of Jesus is likeness to Jesus. And the outworking of likeness to Jesus, becoming like him, is that we love God and that we love people around us. That we are looking outside of and beyond ourselves constantly. And I think we will grow into his image and likeness as we prioritize those four things of perspective, mission, community, and discipleship. That those four pillars, I believe, are going to be what will maintain the structural integrity of what happens as we grow together and continue to be a part of Jesus building his church. So just walk with these four things with me real quickly. The first is perspective. That we want to connect people to a right perspective about God themselves and the world around them. That's why our Sunday gatherings will just continue to be what they are, a gathering that's centered around worship and around prayer and the study of Scripture. And that we will use Scripture as the primary means of allowing God to use it to align our hearts and minds with Him. Because this book displays a just and loving, gracious God who's loved us at great cost to Himself. And this book also tells me that you and I, that we are made in the image of God. And because we're image bearers, then every human being has intrinsic value to God. But the Bible also tells me of a second part of my dual nature that exists inside of me, inside of each one of us. And that's that this other side of it that exists is that sin has fractured and splintered more than just society and culture outside of us. It's, it's fractured and splintered me as a person. So that now warring inside of me is, yes, the reality that I'm made in the image of God, and because of that, every person is worthy of honor and dignity, of love and care and respect as an image bearer who's intrinsically value, but valuable, but simultaneously, I am also now filled with a sinful, fallen nature that corrupts and distorts what God created in us and called so very good. I wish, I wish it was true that we all had a, a naturally, we had a right perspective on things, about God, about ourselves, and about others around us. But as a broken, sinful person living in a broken, sinful, fallen world, I know that I am now pre-wired as a son of Adam with a, a twisted view of God and a broken view of myself and at times a reckless view of humanity around me. And I realized to imply that that's also true of you is neither politically correct nor socially acceptable. But it's precisely how scripture describes both of us. That this is true of us. That, that we have intrinsic value as image bearers, every human being does, but we also have a broken, sinful, fallen nature that's corrupted and that wars within us. Think of it this way. A, 
a car that's out of alignment, that naturally pulls in a direction towards destruction, that, that my heart is messy and broken and naturally pulls me down pathways of destruction. My heart is like that car that's out of alignment. The difference, though, between me and the car is that the car typically needs something outside of itself to knock it out of alignment. It hits a pothole or runs over a large possum or something. And, and then the car and the possum are no longer the same. They'll never be the same. For me, I don't need something outside of myself to knock me out of alignment. That's what scripture teaches me. That because of my broken, sinful, fallen nature, there's something distorted inside of me that's already naturally, instinctively pulling me towards destruction. In fact, Jesus believed that my condition was so bad that behavioral reform was not an option. He said instead I had to be born again. It's new life was the only option. So if that's your view of Christianity, is just that it's about behavioral reform, then you need to know you don't get that view from Jesus himself because he came saying that the only way that we could be made right with God is through rebirth. Something dramatic, a transformation has to take place. You see, the gospel is really terribly offensive because it tells me that I'm far worse than I had imagined. And yet it's good news because it simultaneously tells me, reminds me that I'm also simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. Yes, I'm far worse than I'd imagined. I'm so deeply broken. But simultaneously, I'm far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. You know, in, in the parables Jesus told, and we, we almost touched on this a few weeks ago and didn't get to it, but one of them that he told was the parable of the leaven that goes into the lump. And when the leaven, the kingdom of God, is likened to leaven, it says, and as the leaven enters the lump, what happens when it enters into uh, to dough, to bread? It permeates the whole loaf. The idea is that the gospel permeates throughout the whole of who I am. And the more it the more it does that, the more it permeates through my life and I allow it to take new territory, the more it does it, the more then it collides with my own brokenness and sinfulness. The more it, it, it collides with areas and tells me that I'm wrong, but at the same time, it tells me still that I'm loved. And then it's my choice to yield to Jesus and allow him then to reshape my attitudes and my affections. That's the work of the gospel. That's the work of Jesus in my life. And my commitment to you is that, that I'll do my very best to stay honest about my own brokenness and to stay humble about my continued need for grace and for growth. And I think if we commit to those things together, then I believe that God can do some really wonderful and special things here. In fact, I think the more literal we take the scriptures, and we'll hang on to this, the more literal we take this book, or maybe even we'd say it this way, the more conservative we are of our view of Scripture, I think then the more liberal we are meant to become in our love and compassion for the world. Because the same book that tells me about the destructive nature of sin also tells me that I'm to love even my enemies the way that Christ has loved me. And so the more literal or conservative even I view this book, the more liberal I am meant to become in the way that I will love and have compassion for the world around me. Like I said a few weeks ago, we have to be so careful that we aren't finding ourselves carrying a sword into a field that's ripe and ready for harvest. It's not a battleground. We've got one enemy and it's not a person around us. Perspective that we're constantly going back to the way that the scriptures speak to us about ourselves, about our brokenness and our value to God, and about the way that he alone can save and redeem and restore us. Perspective, but the second thing, mission. 
that our goal and heart as a church is to commission people in the mission of God for the world that they live in. Because I believe that if you have the right perspective about God, about yourself and the world around you, then it will lead you to jump headlong into the mission of God for the world that surrounds you. If you think right about God and, and his love for you and his heart for the world, it will compel you to engage with that world around you. And you've heard me say if you've been around here that really you are the ministers. I know that I'm given the title as a pastor as the minister, but really what scripture says is that you are the ministers and that the job of the pastor or the shepherd is in Ephesians 4, it says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You as the saints have been given the work of the ministry. You've been commissioned in the mission of Jesus. My job is just to function as a coach or a cheerleader to uh, to give you a game plan and then to cheer you on as you live out your calling and you fulfill your part of the Great Commission if you, as you live out your life fulfilling the mission of God that he's entrusted to you. If that's true, then the success of our church is not based upon what's said, sung, or done here so much as it's based upon what you do when you leave here because you're the minister. And if we're truly successful church, it's because you go out and live your life for Jesus, not just when we gather, but we gather so that we effectively scatter. You see, our gathering is not the barometer on how we're doing in health or success, nor is it our end goal. We gather like this to celebrate Jesus together, to be encouraged together, to be equipped together, but then to be commissioned to re-engage with our world the rest of the week. That's what we're here for. To be commissioned in the mission of God for the world that we live in. You see, all of us, if we're followers of Jesus, all of us are missionaries. All of us are ministers. All of us are ambassadors even. And if that's true, then you and I ought to slow down to pray each and every day. To pray something like, God, you love this broken world that was made in your image but has been deeply marred by sin. And so help me to have your heart and your love. Help me to love people the way that you do with grace and patience. And use me. Don't, don't just help me to love them, but use me today in the life of someone to show them what that love, your love, is like. If we believe these things are true, then that ought to be the prayer of every person who's a part of this church community is that today I want to be a part, Jesus, of your mission. So who is that person that I'm going to see today that you're going to want to put your heart in me for them and then you're going to give me something to do for them, a way to love them and serve them? You see, what he's entrusted you to do, the good news is he does not require that you do it alone. Instead, he's instructed that we do it together. The beautiful thing in scripture is that the only thing you're required to do alone is to believe because only you alone can make the decision to do that. Everything else that we're commanded to do in the New Testament, we, we find a pattern of Jesus sending them out two by two. We find a pattern in the epistles of him addressing the church and saying that you should walk circumspectly or that you should go redeem the time or that you should go and do these things. But the you that's there is a you in the Greek language that's plural that's best translated in, a, in an English slang word of y'all. That is, they wrote the church, everything that you're asked to do other than to believe, because only you alone can do that, every other you that's represented of what the church is meant to do is a y'all that we're meant to carry out together. 
Although he's entrusted you to do this, he isn't requiring that you do it alone. He's entrusting that we would do it together as a church and a community. Perspective, mission, community. My heart's desire is to invite people into a community where they can experience life and God together. And I will tell you, this is one of the the very, very special things I think about our church is this community. That there's a real deep love for Jesus, but also a real sense of commitment to each other. That that predates my arrival here. It's actually the first thing that really struck me when I came uh, to pray about potentially being here. And I'm thrilled uh, and so thankful that, that really what God has done is he taken, he's taken what could have been still functioning as two separate groups of people of the original church members who were here before the transition and then those who have come and joined the church after. He's taken what could still exist as two separate groups and what he's done is begun the work of fusing them together as one, as one community, not a broken fractured bunch of smaller groups, but a single community that's a part of the church here. And that's a beautiful and special thing that I think he's done. This last week, I had a friend who was talking to me about the way that they structure their their church gathering here in our local community. And he was talking about how they just made the decision to shift from their greeting time. It used to be about two minutes in the middle of their service after worship. And they just shifted it down to a 30-second timer that you could watch on a screen. So when the worship leader finished... Uh, you know, the 30-second timer would start as you turn and greet, and then you were expected to be seated by the end of that 30 seconds, which is not me throwing stones at them. I just want to tell you, uh, he looked at me and could see my expression. He says, why do you look that way? And I said, oh, that would never fly where I come from. <laughs> you know, the reason we do that, though, is because I really value what happens in that time. I don't just view our singing as spiritual or our time to stop and pray or our time opening scripture as spiritual. I view what happens in that time where people are interacting and interfacing, where relationships are being built, where some of those maybe who have been here, a part of the previous church, are connecting with folks who who are newer to this church. I view that as spiritual because it's a family growing together. It's a bond that's being developed. It's something we pray for, but sometimes we then kind of calculate and manage out of our time together. And I think that's a mistake. And that's why we prioritize this. That's why we take the time to do it. And I'm so thankful that it's taking place. I'm so thankful that we enjoy being together. And as I said earlier, it's kind of my fear of moving inside is that it was so natural as we finished outside just to have kids roaming and people hanging out in the shade. And my hope is that we don't get into a rhythm of like, hey, show up for church as they're playing the last song. Everybody just start making your way out of here. So by the time they finish, everyone's gone. Um, I hope the donuts will bribe you. And your love for one another. I've, I've loved that you stick around. My hope is that you'll continue to do that. Listen, my friends, if we've been forgiven and rescued by Jesus, then what scripture tells me is that we've been made a member of a kingdom, a colony of heaven living here on the earth, that we're a member of a family, that we've been adopted together, that we're now a part of a body, like a human body with lots of different members and parts and functions. Each of us play a different part so that the body as a whole functions with Jesus at the head of that body. And listen, as a part of that body, each person does play a part, an important part. You see, I believe that God has entrusted every person who chooses to follow Jesus. He's entrusted them with a gift. And although he gave that gift to you, it's not really for you. It's for them. It's for someone else. He's entrusted a gift to you. 
But it's really not for you. It's a gift that he's given to you to pass along to someone else. If that's a gift of helps, then it's not just given to you for you to experience and enjoy, but it's given to you for someone else to help them. If it's hospitality or service or encouragement or giving or discernment or wisdom or exhortation or prophecy or mercy, yes, he's given it to you, but it's not for you. It's for someone else. You're a steward of that gift. My hope is that when you come here, that you would know the gift that God has entrusted to you or what those gifts, plural, are, and that you would come always prepared to give that gift to someone else. And I think that a community, think about this, I think that without a mission, a gospel community has the capacity just to devolve into nothing more than an inward turn codependent gathering, which is less than it can be or is created and instituted to be. Mission, having a mission in our community, takes what can become an inward focus and constantly shifts it outward and always forward. Listen, for you who are a part of the original church here at Olive Branch, I told you uh, that my kids, when we first agreed to come, that my kids were praying each and every night for young families to come too. And make no mistake, I, I prayed for young, more young families as well. But don't mistakenly think for a moment that I did that because I wanted them to replace those of you who were previously here and maybe even older. I didn't want them to replace you as the people that I would pastor. It's that I believed that they, those newer families, would become who God would call us to shepherd and love together. Because the scripture tells us, remember, that you're the ministers. And because I believe, as I told you before, that I believe the most valuable currency this church has at its, disposable, at its disposal is the lives of its people. The precious currency that this church has is your love for Jesus and your love and care for one another. And so I believe that you become then the answer to someone else's prayer. That, that when they cry out and say during the week, they're overwhelmed, they say, God, I'm overwhelmed and, and I, I don't know what to do or I'm confused and I don't know where to turn or, or I'm crushed and I don't know how to find hope again. That for so many of you maybe who were a part of the original church here, You've been a part of this church for years and Scott's ministry for years and you've lived life and walked with Jesus and you've suffered even together collectively as a church in different seasons. And if that's true of you, then you know what a gift it is when you hurt to sit with someone else who can look you in the eyes and you just know that they get it. That you can see that they care for you. That you can see that they have hope. Not just on the other side of their pain, but they found hope in the midst of their pain. You see, I think the original church that was here became such a gift to each other in those seasons, but I also believe that you'll continue to be a gift to future generations of this church because you have incredible value as a church family. Because for many of you, you have a currency, you're rich with a currency that everyone needs, but no one's interested in earning. You've suffered and allowed God to comfort you. And that gives, that, that comfort, it gives a person, a precious currency that you can't buy unless you pay for it in pain and personal loss. But when you've suffered and found hope again, you find yourself rich with a currency that everyone needs, but no one wants to earn on their own. 
And don't misunderstand me. I don't want to sound insensitive or leave you thinking or feeling that, that I want to exploit maybe your pain or the journey that you've been on or to think that God would want to exploit that either. I just want you to know and just remember today that I think you have incredible value to our church family here. And yes, that's because for some of you who are part of the older church, you were older and that God has called the older to admonish the young. But my belief is that you also have something valuable, very, very special to offer. And it's more than just your life experience, the time even that you could give to other people. I think it's that something unique and significant that you have to offer beyond your time is your pain and your healing and the hope that you found in Jesus. There's something so unique we give to someone as a gift when we can look them in their eyes and they can see hurt and feel understood and where they can see healing and feel hopeful. And so I think you're a gift to this church but I'd ask you to slow down and consider, so then who has God gifted me to? Remember, the God of all comfort, he comforts us in our affliction so that we can then comfort someone else with the comfort we have received from God. He brings beauty from ashes. Listen, you are the ministers to whom God has entrusted gifts, given them to you, but they're not for you. They're for someone else. And if that's true, then every week when you drive here to the place that we gather before we go and scatter, every week when you drive here, then pray and say, God, who am I or who are we as a family to care for today? Who are we to love on today? Who are we to listen to today, to, to lift up today, to pray for today? Who needs my gift of mercy today to sit with them and comfort them in their pain? Who needs my gift of hospitality today that I'd make them realize that, that they matter and they belong here? Who needs your gift of encouragement today to lift their weary head? Who needs your generosity today to open your life and maybe even a seat at your own dinner table to them? Who needs your discernment and your wisdom today? Who needs your exhortation and help today? That that should be your prayer each and every week as you drive here. Because when we gather as a community, we're doing it to experience God together. We're doing it to be used by God in each other's lives. The final thing, the fourth thing, is discipleship. That we want to train people to actively live as a disciple of Jesus. That that is our grand goal as a church. And I believe that we accomplish that goal by together having the right perspective, by having our perspective realigned, reshaped by Scripture. And as the Spirit of God then takes those truths deep into our heart, and as we choose to yield to Him, He reshapes our heart. And then we embrace the mission that Jesus is entrusting to, entrusted to us. And, and by loving uh, one another, we choose to do that then together in community to carry out the mission and message of Jesus our rabbis, we choose to follow him as a disciple. You probably know that Jesus' earliest followers in the book of Acts, they actually refer to themselves as the people of the way. That's how they, they describe themselves. I love that title. Remember, Jesus says he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so they were the people of the way. They're the ones who follow Jesus. But I love that the way that it describes yourself as a title, it's an active thing. I'm a person of the way. It's communicating that you're following something. You're following the way of Jesus. I love that. It was those outside of the church who first referred to them later in the book of Acts, more in a derogatory sense, as Christians. They mockingly said, you are like little Christ. Christian, they gave them that title. The early church did not take on the title Christian for themselves, little Christ. Other people gave it to them. 
the early followers of Jesus chose to be known as the people of the way. Now think about this. If a Christian is what the earliest followers of Jesus were called because of their likeness to Jesus, then can I really call myself today a Christian if I'm not actively choosing to be a disciple and a follower and apprentice of Jesus? I think it's possible that a great divide exists between the passive title that many in our culture take on of Christian and the active choice we must, we need to make to choose to follow Jesus, to be one of his followers, to choose to be a disciple. You see, likeness to Jesus ought to be the goal of every follower of Jesus. Just five times in the Gospels does Jesus say, believe in me. But 20 times Jesus will say, come and follow me. Jesus never asked anyone to admire him or even to respect him or even like me, he said. Never, never once. Instead, he said, follow me. And we must be disciples who are determined to make more disciples. I believe that making disciples is the single most important mandate that Jesus gave to the church. It's the single most important mandate we have because of that, because Jesus gave it directly to us. Matthew 28, he told us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church family, I believe that this is what God wants to do with us, that these are the targets that we're shooting at. And we don't have a formal church membership here at Olive Branch. But when Jesus and those who wrote the New Testament described the beautiful thing that Jesus was instituting that we call the church, they did not say that they were initiated into a club or merely became a member of a group. They said that they were included now in his sheepfold under the care of the master chief shepherd. It says that they were brought into, adopted, redeemed, and purchased, and adopted into a family. They said that they now became a functional part of a body where Jesus was the head at the command center, but where they had a role to play. You see, a church is not merely a place to grow or a group to be a part of. It's a beautiful, interconnected, interdependent community, and it's the place a broken world can look to to see what the God who loves them is like to see Jesus, the branch, to see us extending from heaven again the olive branch of peace and a hope of reconciliation because of what Jesus has done and because of Jesus' life being lived again in each of us. Listen, you being here, if you call this your church, we don't have membership, but if you call this your church, then, then we are deeply committed to you into your family's growth as we together choose to follow Jesus together. And we would ask for you to have that same kind of commitment to Jesus and to one another. That our commitment would be, let's be followers of Jesus together, who lead others to follow Jesus with us. And so, Father, we thank you that we're invited into this, not just a work that reaches back centuries, not just a, a work that reaches back 2,000 years ago to a cross and an empty tomb. This is a work that reaches back to the garden itself where man's relationship with you was fractured and splintered because of rebellion and sin. But we want to be an extension of that branch to give people the chance, the hope for peace with God, for reconciliation again. 
And Jesus, you purchased that. You secured that for all of us. We now want to extend it again to people. And so, Jesus, we pause now to reflect on what it cost you to secure that for us. We remember a cross. The God who held the universe in the span of his hand, who, who became so frail and gentle, so even dependent, that he'd be an infant being held in the hands of a human. That, Jesus, you'd live and grow and suffer among us, like us. And then you would, in the end, suffer for us. Jesus, we thank you, and we reflect now in this moment on you.